The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning, people of God. I bring you greetings from Bull Street Baptist Church back in Savannah, Georgia. And it is absolutely a blessing to be with you on this Lord's Day. Um, my name is Harold Edwards, also uh, known as Zion, and I am nobody special, uh, just a nobody from the west side of Savannah that the Lord chose to pluck out for his own glory, called me unto himself, and has decided to use me in some fashion to bring glory unto his holy name. And with that great privilege, it is a reality that I um, understand that, that one day I'll stand before him and have to give an account uh, for the life um, that I've lived and how I've represented him, and I try to do it in a way that ultimately brings him glory. I am blessed to be here um, today with my beautiful bride, Trinice, who is actually with me, um, and I am honored um, for the relationship that the Lord has granted uh, me and Pastor Greg in this short stint um, as him and I become uh, brothers in the Lord and get to know each other in a greater sense that he would be so kind um, to invite me to stand in his stead on this Lord's day. And I know he's watching uh, via screen. And uh, I want to say again to you, I love you, brother, and thank you for this um, amazing opportunity. Um, I have a lot to say in a short time uh, to say it in, so we're not going to prolong the time, but we are going to uh, turn our hearts to the Lord and see what the Lord has to say to us from his word. And so I want you to take your copy of God's word and go with me to the book of Romans. Today we'll be in Romans chapter number 12, uh, looking at verses 9 through 21. And when you have uh, your place in God's word, I want you to stand to your feet uh, in representation that you have found your place. And we're going to honor the Lord in the reading of his word as they did in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. We will read our text, then make our prayer, and we will dive into our message for today. Romans chapter number 12, beginning at verse number 9. It is here that the Apostle Paul says, Let love be genuine. He says, Abhor what is evil, but hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one evil for evil, but give, th but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, saith the Lord. Verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Paul says, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Let us make our prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, God, it's again in another time that you have brought us uh, to this place at this particular time by your sovereign will, and you have brought us to the most preeminent part of our gathering. And as I often ask, God, I pray, first of all, that you, by your grace, would be with me, that you would give me special grace that I may speak as of the oracles of God. Lord, would you give me clarity of mind and clarity of speech that I may declare uh, your word in such a way that ascends before your throne in an honorable manner. God, I pray also for these, your people, Lord God, that you would keep them free from distraction and that you would allow them to hear your voice beyond my voice, uh, that we together may hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today. And God, we'll be so careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor because it's to you and you alone who deserves all praise. Get glory for yourself, O oh Lord. And God, may we leave this place today simply saying how great and how magnificent the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's these blessings and all of the blessings we ask in that holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter number 12 uh, verses 9 through 21, and I have chosen for a subject matter this morning, marked by love. Marked by love. As we come to our text this morning, it is here in chapter number 12 where the Apostle Paul transitions or turns the corner, if you will, in this epistle to the Romans. From chapter number 1 to chapter number 11, he has written to them concerning great doctrinal truths which are essential to the Christian faith. Uh, these truths would include the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sanctification, and the doctrine of God's amazing sovereignty. But as we come to chapter number 12, and from chapter number 12, really uh, throughout chapter number 16, he will now address the doctrine of service. And to do so, he moves from the aspect of theology that deals with epistemology to the aspect of theology which focuses on ethics. Now, the word epistemology is nothing but a fancy word that has to do with knowledge. In other words, us as the people of God, knowing what we ought to know. Um, and the Bible has a lot to say about what we should know as the people of God. And it not just speaks to what we should know as the people of God, but epistemology also has the idea of the truthfulness or the validity of what we know. I think it is safe to say that in our culture, we pride ourselves on the basis of our knowledge. We beat our chest, beat our chest and we, we glory in the fact that we are good Bible-believing Christians who hold to biblical truth and biblical inerrancy, and we are the byproduct of faithful men and women who have went throughout the ages of the history of the church, preserving the faith in the sense that the faith has found its way into our lives, and it has affected us in a way that has brought about faith and salvation. 
epistemology, what we know. But might I surmise to you that that has and continues to be the problem to some degree. You say, how so? Because if we simply stop at knowledge, hear me closely, we have a deficient theology. There is another side to the coin, and it is the side that deals with Christian ethics. In other words, epistemology deals with what we know. However, ethics focuses on our duty in light of what we know. And so from chapter number 12 to chapter number 16, Paul will now address how we as the people of God ought be living, how we ought be serving in direct relation to the abundance of grace that you and I have received. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the worthy walk over there in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse 1. If you remember in his epistle to the believers at Ephesus, he writes to them in Ephesians chapter number 4, verse 1, and he says, as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith ye have been called. And perhaps the best uh, illustration that illustrates for us and gives us a mental picture of what Paul actually means when he calls them to walk or calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith we've been called is perhaps a imagery of an even proportion scale. Well, on one side of that scale, we would take all the rich doctrines of the Christian faith and we would place them on one side of that scale and undoubtedly favorably tipping the scale in that way. But when Paul calls for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling wherewith we've been called, what he's now calling us to do is to live a life practically in such a way as in to balance that scale, to rightly affirm by our life and our action the truths that we say we believe and affirm. And so at this point, it is important for us uh, to always remember and make a note that it is God who gives us our reference. You say, what do you mean by that, Brother Zion? In other words, man is not who he thinks he is. Man is not who he says he is, but he is who God says that he is. It is God who aligns our lives and gives us true perspective and purpose and direction and destiny of life. It is only when we behold Christ, the hypostasis of God, in his infinite perfection, that we are truly able to see ourselves as we truly are. Now you say, why do I say all of that? Because so is it with regard to this business of love. If you remember over there in Romans chapter number 5, verse number 8, Paul has already taught us that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. What we have learned from God's demonstration of love is that God's love is not selfish, but it is sacrificial. What we have learned from God's demonstration of love is that his love is not self-centered, but others-centered. What we have learned from God's demonstration of love is that it does not seek the service of itself, but seeks the service and the serving of others. If you remember over there in Mark chapter number 10, verse 45, the Lord Jesus Christ is recorded in saying that the Son of Man came not to be served, right? 
He says, but on the contrary, to serve. How so? By giving his life as a ransom. And so as a foundational principle, now having established love in God and how the nature of that love functions and operates as a result of it being lavished upon us in such an abundant way, Paul will now describe Christian love. The love that we ought to have for one another as the redeemed people of God. And thus so, consequently, the love that we should have for our fellow man. And hear me close, which would even include the love that we have been called to have for even our enemies. And so with that being said, I want to draw your attention now to our text. And first, from verses 9 to 13, it is here where Paul describes or will describe what love ought to look like in the church, namely amongst Christian brothers and sisters. And in the A clause of verse number nine, he simply begins by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. I believe your ESV version says, let love be genuine, but I believe the NASB gets it right on this. He says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Now, the first thing that I want to point out is that what Paul is simply saying is that for us as the people of God, our love for one another is to truly be sincere and it is to truly be true for one another. The word hypocrisy is the Greek word anipokritos, which uh, comes from a word that was heavily entrenched in Greek culture as it related to the world of theater and the stage. Follow me. Now, when you think about plays or dramas, Broadway, if you will, uh, the first thing that comes to mind or should come to mind when you think about the stage is actors and actresses. In other words, everyone involved on the stage, every line that is spoken, every emotion portrayed, the makeup, even the costumes worn, everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything that is associated with the drama. It is all a part of one big act. It's a farce. It's not real. And some of these plays are very good. They have us on the emotional roller coaster. At one minute, we're laughing and we're, we're having a ball. On another moment, we're down and sad and tears are rolling down our eyes. But the truth of the matter is, it's not real. There's a sidebar here, and uh, I remember in 1985 when the blockbuster movie, uh, The Color Purple, came out. How many of y'all have ever seen the movie? Okay, if you haven't, at the prayer, we're going to have an altar call, and we're going to pray for you <laughs> because you definitely need to repent. All right? 1985, the movie The Color Purple, starring Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey. Well, in this movie, Danny Glover plays the character, a character by the name of Mr. And if you know the movie, if you don't, let me just tell you. Uh, Mr. was a bad dude. He was a mean, mean guy, right? And I remember as being a 10-year-old boy, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't like Mr. because all of the horrible things that he did in, in this movie. Um, 
But just like it is now, it was true then that depending on the success of the movie, a lot of these actors and actresses start showing up on, these, on the couches of these talk shows. And so I remember coming home from school one day and my mama had the TV on and there uh, Danny Glover was sitting on the podium being interviewed on this talk show. And he's, and he's so well put together and, and well dressed and, and they're conversing and everybody's smiling and he's answering questions and they're panning to the, to the in, uh, in, in, in building a crowd and everybody's smiling and applauding. And I remember on the inside becoming angry saying, what's wrong with these people? Don't they know that this is mister? There is nothing to like about mister. Not understanding in my tender age that Danny Glover or mister, he was actually playing a role. That wasn't his real life. And so is it also concerning the entire cast. Many of these people, once the director says cut, many of them have no real dealings with one another as it relates to their real and personal lives. Many of them go in their separate directions, back into their normal way of life, having no real involvement with one another. Hear me, only until the next time the director says action. Only until the next time it's presented for them to perform. Hope you'll be able to get this. Paul says regarding the people of God, when we gather in this place, he says not so concerning the redeemed people of God. Well, Paul is simply saying that this is not to be a stage. This is not to be a place for actors. This is not to be a place for phony liars. We ought to be true. We ought to be living in light of the truth because we are the ones who profess to have supposedly been changed ontologically by the truth. And while that is true, what is equally true about me and what is equally true about you, you know what? You all, we all, all of us have the tendency to live precisely this way. You see how so, Brother Zion? We say things that we really don't mean. We shake hands and we embrace it. Say, oh, hey, how you doing, brother? Right? And, and, and all of that is about a half an inch deep. Right? We play the part like an actor. We express words and gestures with no real genuine concern or affection involved. Paul says that is hypocrisy and it should not be amongst the redeemed people of God. He says, let love be genuine. This idea of hypocrisy, in my opinion, is epitomized in the betrayal of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the Bible tells us that when Judas betrays him, don't miss the gravity of this. He betrays him with a kiss. Don't miss the gravity of that. The kiss in Jewish culture was and still is the highest and most noblest gesture that a man could render. It is supposed to signify love, honor, and peace, but Judas's kiss was filled with hatred, betrayal, and dishonor. 
and hostility. The very hostility that quickly ensued our Lord when the Romans took him into captivity. So this brings us to major point number one for those that are taking notes. Here in the A clause of verse number nine, Paul is teaching us here that our love is to be authentic. Major point number one, our love is to be authentic, but not just authentic, but I want you to know the B clause, notice the B clause of verse number nine. Major point number two, he also teaches us that our love is to be astute, which means discerning and judicial. Notice the B clause of verse number nine. He says, let love be genuine, but then he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. In other words, hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. Now, what is interesting is immediately after exhorting us to sincere and authentic love, Paul now follows with the command to hate. And that can seem on the surface to be somewhat of a dichotomy, or, or, but, but it's not. Have you considered that 1 John chapter number 4, verse 8 teaches us that our God, the biblical God as he's revealed in Scripture, is a God who is, the Bible says, love. He doesn't possess love. The Bible says God is love right? But might I surmise to you that the God who is love is also a God who hates. Psalms chapter number 11, verse 5, it is here that the scripture says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his whole, his whole soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In Proverbs chapter number 6, verse 16 through 19, it is here that the words are recorded. Uh, there are six things that the Lord hates, Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord amongst brethren. Might I surmise to you that to truly love you must hate? See, I can say uh, with Brother Paul Washer that because I love babies, I hate abortion. Right? Because I love the dignity of human life, that every individual born into the human race was born with dignity and honor given to them by their creator. They are the image bearer of God. And because I love the dignity of humanity, I hate all forms of injustice. And don't drink the Kool-Aid and allow the world to make you think that for us as Christians, justice is a social issue. No, it's a creation issue. And so it's important that the love that must exist amongst the church, the redeemed people of God, is a love that discerns what is good and true, and as a result of us discerning what is good and true, the Bible calls us to acquiesce to it and to cling to it, while at the same time discerning what is to be utterly detested, hated, and shunned, and as a result of our obedience to God, reject anything associated with it. And guess what? Whoever that sets us with, it sets us with. And whoever that sets us against, it sets us against. Now you say, why do you say that? Because this is the reality concerning human nature. You know, we don't choose the right side. Oftentimes in our fallenness, we choose a side. 
And a lot of times, to our shame, we choose a side a lot of times motivated by influences that has nothing to do with biblical truth, which causes us by default a lot of times to be walking in a manner out of step with the gospel. Sometimes we make decisions based on certain uh, affiliation with certain political parties. Sometimes we make decisions based on our denomination or certain traditions. Sometimes we make certain decisions based on fear. No self-preservation kicks in. Well, if I say that or I take that stand, it's going to cost me. And so sometimes we find ourselves acting in such a way or failing to act at other times that puts us in a position when we're walking out of step with the truth of the gospel. Don't you know that there is a such thing that exists which the Bible calls behaviors and actions that are out of step with the gospel? Remember over there in Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter number two, right? Peter's enjoying his pork chopped sandwiches with his Gentile brothers and sisters, right? And Paul has to rebuke him to his face because it wasn't a matter of a lack of information for Peter. Peter is the same one in the book of Acts where the Bible says he has this vision, right? The sheet is let down from heaven. There are four-footed beasts, all kind of things that the Jews were forbidden to eat. And God tells him, eat, kill, and eat. But that was a spiritual revelation, right? That God had no favor, uh, favoritism as related to men. But whoever would repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, without exception, God would accept them, right? And from that vision, God sends him to the first Gentile to be saved in the New Testament, which is Cornelius. So Peter knew the truth. It wasn't a matter of a lack of information. The Bible actually tells us that, however, when he saw the circumcision, when he saw the Jews, he feared and withdrew from the Gentiles. And the Bible says because what he did went on to send the wrong message to the point where it affected even Barnabas, that one known as the beloved Barnabas, the boss, Paul says he needed to be withstood face to face. So our love must be a love that is authentic, but it is also a love that is to be astute. Now in verses 10 through 13, Paul will now uh, lay stress upon the reality of how our love should operate and function, particularly in uniting Christians one to another. And we don't have time to unpack them all, so we're going to hit them in passing. In verse number 10, he clearly says that love is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In the B clause of verse number 10, he says that love honors others above one's self. In verse number 11, he says, love is never lacking or slothful in zeal. Uh, this is a warning against spiritual laziness or slothfulness in doing good as God defines good. In other words, he's saying we are not to be passive, but passionately pursuing the good of all men, especially those of the household of faith. We are to be fervently serving the Lord. However, people, let me caution you. It is impossible to serve the Lord like he has commanded us to serve him without serving his people. In verse number 12, he says that love is joyful, hopeful, patient, and also prayerful. 
is in the eighth clause of verse 13, he, where he teaches us that love is generous. This is uh, the idea of sharing with one another and contributing to one another. The idea here is fellowship, the Greek word kononia, which denotes the shared life. The call is to be tangibly sharing with those who are in need. And this would have more to do with the local context. Brothers and sisters that we know, and you say, well, why do I make that distinction? Because the very next one, he says, has to do more with strangers. He says, let love, or love should be hospitable. The idea here is kindness towards strangers. And so contextually, this would have been very, very important for the first century church. All right, if you know uh, anything about the book of Romans, this is a missionary support letter, right? And so you know contextually that the believers in first century is under great uh, persecution, excuse me. And so as believers were carrying the gospel from one region or one area to another, many of them at times having to flee maybe one region to flee to another region simply because of threat of life, the only support and love and care they would have had in that new region or where they found themselves would have been the love and the support that had came from other brothers and sisters in the faith opening their homes to them, feeding them, clothing them. If they had been beaten, bandaging their wounds, do you see the gravity of why it would have been important for love to be, be, be made manifested in this way? Paul says love is to be hospitable. You say, what would cause a person to behave in such a way? Paul would say a love that is genuine. A love that is authentic, a love that is astute, a love that is genuine for God, which manifests in a real and tangible love horizontally for his people. Now, lastly, in verses 14, 14 through 21, Paul will now describe how our love ought to look concerning those outside the church. And he teaches us, and major point number three here, for those that are taking notes, that our love is to be absurd. Our love is to be authentic. Our love is to be astute. But here thoroughly in major point number three, Paul teaches us that our love also is to be absurd, meaning counterintuitive, unreasonable, naturally speaking, and absolutely foolishness to the natural mind. Notice what he says in verse number 14. He says, bless those that persecute you. This word blessed means to ask God's blessing on a thing ultimately to the use of God. Now, Paul is not asking us to be nice to people for the sake of being nice when they do us wrong. No. But what Paul is challenging us to do, hear me closely, is to view those encounters through a spiritual lens. What he is challenging us to do is to view those encounters through the eyes of God's sovereignty and understand that perhaps in the theophany and purposes of God that the Lord has allowed that encounter to transpire in order for you and I to display his divine attributes in order to make the gospel of the kingdom more increasingly attractive. Now, <laughs> this is a lot easier to preach than to live, right? And, and as a preacher, and all preachers can affirm this, that we've been called 
to preach a perfect gospel in honor of a holy and perfect God, while at the same time, a lot of times, looking at ourselves in the mirror and being honest with ourselves, saying that, man, there is still so much left wanting yet in me. And if it be not for the merit of Christ, that alien righteousness that is not of our own, but that which has been placed on our account because of the fulfilled obedience of the Son and His righteousness being placed on our account, we wouldn't have the right to stand behind this sacred desk and declare anything of the Lord. And so as I say that to you, you know, as a preacher, my heart is convicted because this is so much easier to preach than to live. Because the tendency and the natural reflex of the flesh when we're reviled is to revile back. When we're dead wrong, we want justice. We want retribution. We want to defend ourselves. But the call of the gospel to us is to understand that whatever finds its place in our lives as children of God, it had to go by the check desk of God to be approved to enter into our lives. That ain't just the good, but that is also the not so good. And we must remember that Paul understood this reality. And he says, listen, bless those that persecute you. Paul is no hypocrite here. The reality is for the apostle Paul, Paul lived as a result of this truth. Remember over there in the book of Acts, uh, chapter number 7, the Bible teaches us uh, that in brothers Stephen's obedience to the Lord to make fully known the gospel, the Bible says that those Jews in that particular time rejected the gospel, and as a result of it, they all at once stoned our brother Stephen to death in Acts chapter number 7. Well, the Bible also tells us that there was a man standing there consenting to Stephen's death, holding the jackets or the coats of those who performed that horrific act. And the Bible says his name was Saul of Tarsus. This is when he shows up on the pages of Scripture. When you get to Acts chapter number 8 and 9, he comes into clear view in the Scriptures. And what do we see? We see Saul of Tarsus breathing out threatens, hatred, bringing down havoc upon Christ's church, right? He has this paper of permission that wherever he finds believers, Christians, he's able to bind them, arrest them, and do with them as he wills. Well, he's on his road to Damascus to carry out his uh, diabolical and evil uh, bidding, and the Bible says that Christ steps into his life and says, Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? right? He says, who art thou, Lord? He says, yes, it is I, Jesus, whom thou persecutes. At that very moment, Saul of Tarsus' eyes are open. His God-hating heart is taken out. God gives him a heart of flesh. He believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus says, get up, go into the city, and it will be told what great things you must do and also what you will suffer for my name's sake. But at that stoning of Stephen, as he stood there consenting to Stephen's death, he witnessed Stephen do something that was absolutely absurd. The Bible says before Stephen gave up the ghost, he looked up to heaven and he saw Jesus Christ not seated, seated but standing ready to receive his spirit. And he heard Brother Stephen utter these words, O Lord, please lay not the charge of this sin on their account. So pre-conversion, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, witnessed 
and was a benefactor of such absurd love. But after his conversion, it doesn't stop there. Uh, he goes on to be a one who not just preaches or, or, or lives this truth, but he also exhorted others to this reality as well. Remember, he writes to his pupil in the faith in 2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 10. You don't have to flip over there. Write this down. He says this to his pupil in the faith. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What an amazing reality that the chiefest opposer to the faith, the Bible says his new fame, the new fame that began to surround this man was that the one who was the chiefest opposer to the faith is now the greatest proponent of the faith. And he says, I view whatever I endure through the eyes of God's sovereignty and I respond in such a way in love in order to make the gospel of the kingdom more increasingly attractive. Whatever I endure, to endure Timothy, I endure it for the sake of the elect. What are some of the things that Paul endured? Well, you know the scriptures if you read over in the New Testament, imprisonments, betrayal, flogging, stonings, left for dead, shipwreck, right? And the list goes on. He says in verse 15, he says in verse 15, back to our text, he says rejoice with those that rejoice. But then he says weep also with those that weep. I believe that this exaltation here is a call to guard one's heart against envy, but at the same time guard one's heart against indifference. Envy, perhaps, you know, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me, right? You know, something good happens to a non-believer or somebody we know you know, they find out that their auntie or somebody left them $2 million and, or that person on your job who you know don't work worth two cents, they some kind of way, you know, end up being the one to get the position in the promotion and, 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 and there's a little dip on the inside, right? Envy. Or perhaps even in the Christian community, right? Maybe, you know, you and your spouse has been trying to have a child and maybe there's been some difficulty in conception and then, you know, here comes brother, sister, and so and so and so, saying, "Oh yeah, we're having another baby." And then there's a little, there's a little deep dip. No, it's envy. Paul says, "No, rejoice with those that rejoice." But then it's not just a, a, a an exaltation to God against envy, but it's also an exaltation to God against indifference. You know, maybe some tragedy happens, maybe in our own neighborhood, right in our own backyard. And we, as the people of God, both individually and collectively, we show total apathy and indifference to it. But at the same time, want these people in our community to believe that Jesus cares about them, but we are the people who basically supposedly represent the God that we want them to believe cares about them in their plight. It doesn't work that way, people. The Bible says we ought to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Just a little testimony. When Ahmaud Aubrey was gunned down in Brunswick, I took my two teenage boys down there just to stand in solidarity with the family. Had, had nothing to do with whether the, all of the evidence came out. I didn't need to know how much more about the situation was to be unfolded. It was the fact of the matter 
that that very next Sunday was Mother's Day. And that dear mother, on that next Sunday, didn't have her son anymore. So I took my sons down there just to stand in solidarity with that family, just to show them what Christian ethics looked like. Just to be in a place where there was hurt and questions, and perhaps by the grace of God, an opportunity, and it did present an opportunity for me to share the gospel with many people that were down there. Because a lot of times in those places, there's anger, there's angst, there's questions. And when the voice of God is not in those places, something else fills the vacuum. So we must be intentional about positioning ourselves so that we may interject the heart of God and the heartbeat of God and the truth of God's word in those places because the answer is not in government. It don't matter who's in the White House. The answer is in the gospel. And we say we believe that. How do we get that to the people who most need it? We must love them. We must love them to the point where we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and get into maybe some places that are not so comfortable for the sake of gospel advancement. In verse 16, he goes on to say, here, live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, but be associated with the lowly, never being wise in your own sight. Here, he's simply saying, be humble. Relate to one another equally. Don't be uh, like the world. Don't, don't show partiality and favoritism. That's how the world acts. Verse 16, he says, don't be conceited. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And if, guys, if you're married in here, you shouldn't have no problem with that. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Don't take yourself so serious. Don't think of yourself more highly. I love you, baby. Right. Verse 18. He's basically saying in verse 18, not all the time is it possible for us to live in peace. Notice what he says in 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The reason he says if it be possible, because the truth of the matter is, it is not always possible for us to live peaceably with all. Sometimes people don't want peace. But what he's saying to you, oh Christian, if there is no peace, don't let it be on your account. See, this is what Christian love looks like. This is what love looks like, not just in the community of saints, but also this is what love looks like practically amongst the unbelieving world. Matthew chapter number 5 verse 9 simply says it this way, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And in verses 19 through 21, as we come in for a landing, I'll simply read and summarize. He says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now here Paul is not saying 
that as Christians, we ought to seek to be lovingly helpful to those who do us wrong in order that God may get them. <laughs> no, but what I believe Paul is actually exalting us to um, comes from an Egyptian practice um, in the ancient times where individuals uh, would carry a hot pan of coal, burning coals, upon their head as an outward sign of repentance or shame for guilt. And so the idea is, as co-labors together with God in the work of reconciliation, when we display love toward our enemies, it is to be with the heart posture and the understanding coupled with prayer that God would use our obedience to him and our manifested love for our enemies in some way as in to hopefully and prayerfully bring about conviction, contrition, and repentance in the life of those who oppose us. That is an absurd love. Might I even add that is a love that we cannot perform and cannot carry out in our own strength. But the gospel tells me that what, with man, which is, what is impossible, with God it is possible. And God has given us of his spirit, right? And as the great historical figure within the Christian church has taught us, Augustine, that our God is a God who grants what he wills. Yes. Commands what he wills. But he's also the God that grants what he commands. So if he commands us to love in such a way, he is also the God who grants us the grace and the, the wherewithal to carry out his command. Jesus says it very bluntly. This is how they should know that you are my disciples. How? Because I go to grace on, the, on Ashley. No. Because I wear Christian t-shirts and listen to gospel music. No. He says, by this they will know that you are mine. Based on your love that you have one for another. Yes, that is, that is perfected and carried out in the context of Christian believers, but is extended outside of the Christian community in a way that bespeaks of the reality of Christ. Because the reality is we could go to grace on the Ashley. We can wear Christian t-shirts. We can listen to gospel music and do all of those things and be lost as a ball in high grass. Is that you would know them by their fruit, the fruit of love. In my closing, let me say this. In God's love and favor bestowed upon us in calling us unto himself by his undeserved grace, he has saved us and he has brought us into right relation with him but when he saved us, he did not save us into himself. He brought us and saved us into a body, <clears throat> namely the church. But as the church, he has given us a mission. And the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, as a Christian community, before we can even begin to know in any regard what love looks like out there. We got to be honest 
about what we call love amongst the true redeemed community of believers. <clears throat> so I pray that in these few scattered words, that first to the believer, I pray that this message will convict and challenge your heart as it relates to how you walk in love amongst your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not allowing it to stop there, but a love that ultimately will manifest in how you love those that are unredeemed. Perhaps you're in this place today and you don't know Christ and you have heard this message and you say, man, I can't, I can't, I can't love like that. Might I affirm and say, you're right, you can't. But I'm here to let you know that I represent a God who not just commands you to such obedience, but he will enable you to do so in fulfillment of his command. The Bible says that if you will repent of your sins and strand yourself on the mercy of God and own your sin and say, God, I can't, I can't live up to that standard. However, Lord, would you, Lord, would you help me? I'm a living witness that he'll do more than just help you. He'll save you, he'll come into your heart, and he'll give you not just the will, but also the ability to do of his good pleasure. So we're going to turn our hearts to the Lord at this time as I pray. And if something has been said that has pricked your heart and perhaps you have heard today like you've never heard before, you would like to talk to me at the service a little bit more about this message perhaps or about what it means to be a Christian or to be saved, I'll be glad to speak with you at the back of the church at the end of service. Let us bow our heads. Gracious God and Heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God, we thank you for everything that you've allowed us to witness in our midst today. God, we thank you for everything that you have wrought by your Spirit, and Lord, we pray that you would do in the hearts of these, your people, what only you can do, all to the praise of your glorious grace. Perhaps this message to one would be as the gospel, the power of God that saves men from eternal ruin. God, would you save sinners in this place today, that it may be for your glory and your glory alone, but manifest for our joy and the joy of the nations. Or perhaps to another, one who have already been redeemed. God, may this be more fuel on the fire that already, already burns in their hearts for you. That we may live more committed lives and more obedient lives, more sanctified lives, more disciplined lives for you and your kingdom that our lives will be a beacon of light in the midst of this dark and dying world as we live in obedience to the command to live as children of light amongst a dying generation. These blessings we ask in your holy name, the only name given among men whereby we must be saved, the name of Jesus. We thank you. Amen.